Hello, this is Phil. Thanks for your continuing subscription to Bradbury 100. We now have listeners in 44 countries around the world, and between us, we're helping to keep Ray Bradbury's legacy alive. Today, if I may, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast I'm working on. It's called Science Fiction 101. In each episode, with my co-host Colin Kusky, we look at the past, present and future of the science fiction field, and give our suggestions of what to read and things to watch. Please take a listen here and now, and if you enjoy it, please search for Science Fiction 101 in your podcast app. You can also find us on Spotify, Anchor FM and Apple Podcasts. I hope you like our first episode of Science Fiction 101. Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series where we explore the science fiction field from all angles, covering the past, the present and the future. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And this week is our first ever episode, so I think it would be good for us to introduce ourselves and say something about our background in science fiction. So, Colin, would you like to go first? Sure. I have been a, a science fiction reader for most of my life. Um, I'm from a small town in Oregon in the United States called Cottage Grove. And in our little library, there was a section reserved just for you know children's books. And in the chapter book section, uh, after I read all of the Hardy Boy books and all the Nancy Drew books, there were the Tom Swift books. Wow. And that, that showed me that if I went into the library and found books with this little atomic symbol on it, I would find books that I enjoyed reading. And uh, I've just never stopped reading science fiction. Fantastic. And and you, you obviously you like films and other media as well. Oh, yeah. Films, television. I'm not so much into video games. I think we have quite a bit in common then. I'm, the, the one exception would be the, the library aspect. Libraries did play a big part in my um, sort of familiarity with science fiction, but at a later stage, not in my sort of early days of reading. I remember when I was very young, I was given books that I really didn't like at all. Um, there was nothing remotely science fictional there, but they were books about um, sort of animals, which I didn't particularly find very interesting, and lots of old British classics, which didn't interest me at all. I wasn't really interested in the past as a child. Um, but what I was interested in was science fiction. So I watched, uh, you know, all the all the classic TV shows as a child: Star Trek, Time Tunnel, um, Lost in Space, Fantastic Journey, and Logan's Run, the TV series. Um, so that really was my first exposure to science fiction. Things was through TV shows and films. At some point, I. I can't remember exactly when, but at some point I came into possession of a book of short stories by Arthur C. Clarke, and that was the first science fiction I read. And then later on, I think my second book that could be called science fiction was a Ray Bradbury book, and then I discovered H.G. Wells, and uh, that's when I think I knew that science fiction was my thing, because I read The Invisible Man in one sitting. And after that, I had to get all the other Wells books as well. So that strangely, my introduction was through media. But once I discovered the literature, I realised how much more impressive it could be. Did you 
go through a phase where you felt you had to read everything there was? Yes. Although because of the library, there was always more than I, I could ever hope to read. Right. Just there wasn't enough time. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess before we go much further today, we should address the elephant in the room. What do we actually mean by science fiction? Do you have a personal rule of thumb as to what counts as science fiction? I, I do. But uh, when we were talking about doing this, I actually did a little bit of research mm -hmm. looking at what other people view as science fiction. Uh, and I reached out to a handful of some of my, my current favorite authors. Wow. wow. And I found that if you talk to your favorite authors who happen to be very popular and producing books, uh, you will very quickly get back a response from their assistants saying, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but I'm too busy or, or the author is too busy to uh, you know, write a response to your question. Uh, I did hear back from Mike Glyer at file770.com, which right. is a science fiction fan site. Yeah. Uh, his idea of science fiction is it is a place where you can do thought experiments asking what if a particular change happened in science, human relations, or anything, and where imagining ways the consequences of that change play out is in the foreground of the story. Wow. That's a very good one. Did you get any other responses? Uh, I got one from Seth Heasley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said it was similar to pornography. <laughs> In that it's very hard to define, but when you see it, you know it. <laughs> but what Seth's doing there, I think, is uh, he's paraphrasing a judge in the US Supreme Court, I think. But Colin, what's your personal take on defining science fiction? From my own personal view, science fiction has to do with, it, it really asks the question, what if? Mm -hmm. And if the question, what if, involves some kind of technology or magic or belief, it's probably science fiction. And if, if those elements are missing, then you're probably just talking about regular fiction. It's interesting how with all of these definitions, there's always a kind of a core idea of what it is that science fiction does. But then there's, there's some kind of um, small print that helps you exclude the things that you don't think should be in there. <laughs> Uh, which, which either is sort of conventional fiction, in inverted commas, or fantasy, because lots of people make a, dis a distinction between science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I, I always find these sort of two-part definitions quite fascinating. Do, do you think you, you had a notion of what science fiction was when you were first reading science fiction, or is it something that you developed an understanding of what it is through reading more and more of it? Yeah, I definitely did not have an idea about what science fiction was when I first started. Mm -hmm. And as the more that I read, the, I think the more I tend to shuffle back and forth. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the opinions of, of authors who mm -hmm. consider their work science fiction or not science fiction mm -hmm. and how, how, you, how that falls into those those ideas, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I made some notes as well, and I made some notes of what I remember various science fiction writers saying, or sorry, various writers saying about science fiction. I've got um, Richard Matheson, who I, I think most people would, would know, if anything, from the book I Am Legend, which has been filmed a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, but he also wrote very broadly in fantasy and science fiction. He wrote loads of uh, Twilight Zone episodes based on his own stories. His approach, uh, I don't think this is actually a definition of science fiction, but his approach to the type of things he writes was 
that he more or less dealt in reality, but he believed in changing one thing, so making one element of the story fantastical, and then seeing what happens. So it is that kind of what-if thing, which I, th I think you said was Mike Glyer's um, uh, sort of starting point for his definitions. Yes. Um, so it's a kind of a what-if. And uh, Ray Bradbury, who, as you know, Colin, and, and some listeners may know, is a, a writer that I followed um, intensely for a number of years. Ray Bradbury simply made a, de a distinction between science fiction and fantasy by saying that science fiction is about the possible, whereas fantasy is about the impossible. And that's pretty much all he had to say on the matter, other than to say that science fiction stories generally dealt with speculation or extrapolation and that kind of thing. Um, and then I've got a couple of other notes here. One, um, H.G. Wells, uh, he was talking about his short stories, what he called something like single sitting stories of science. Um, and and he said that what he did in those stories was to try to convince you that something that was impossible was possible, and then he would try and get the story over with as quickly as possible while that illusion still held. So he, it's as if he saw um, the the trick of science fiction as really being a kind of sleight of hand. Um, but it's all about the suspension of disbelief, which is a phrase that we often hear in relation to science fiction. Well, and in relation to all fiction generally, I suppose, is about yes. suspending disbelief. Probably the strangest one that I've come across is from Kim Stanley Robinson, who's uh, an American novelist, wrote Red Mars, well, and the, the, the Mars trilogy and loads of other great science fiction novels. Yes. And he claims that science fiction is historical literature. And that sort of set me back a bit when I first heard that. But having heard his explanation, it, it sort of makes sense for the kind of fiction that he writes, because he writes these narratives that really are bedded in kind of social history and political developments and so on. So he sees science fiction simply as uh, continuing historical literature on into the future in some sense. Right? So I think that's a, an unusual definition and probably doesn't apply to all science fiction but it does seem to apply to the type that he works on. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting offshoot. Uh, it you know it's very reminiscent of Dune. It's more mm. of a sociological. It's more a study of society almost than a mm. study of technology or how technology affects society. Yes, and certainly in the case of um, Kim Stanley Robinson, what he tends to do is he tends to take the the technological. Um, elements that allow his future stories to exist really is just a starting point. Um, but he's he's very much interested in the consequence rather than the um, the, the what if in itself. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me, I, I didn't want to go too academic here, but I did look up the probably the standard academic definition of science fiction. It's one that's held for many, many years. I don't think I've ever spoken to a science fiction fan who uses anything close to this, but a, a really dominant definition in academia for a long time has been from a critic called Darko Suvin, who talked about cognitive estrangement as being what science fiction is about. And that's a horrible phrase, but essentially it's a two-part process that he sees as taking place in a science fiction story. 
the cognitive bit means there's some sort of intellectual content or there's some sort of, um, I suppose, some sort of mind game that's going on that is intellectually based. And then the estrangement means that we're presented with a world which is um, noticeably different from the real world and we are conscious of that when we're reading the story. At least that's my sort of interpretation of what he uh, called it. But probably the the more valuable part of Darko Suvin's attempt to define science fiction was he he put his finger absolutely on the the kind of defining thing of science fiction. He called it the novum, and the novum is that element in the story that makes the world different from our world. And so again, it's coming back to that what if it's change a thing and then see what would happen. Um, and usually, of course, in science fiction, it's usually a scientific thing or a technological thing that changes and makes the world different from our current world. I wrote down what if, because when I was writing some notes for this, I, I put down my rule of thumb and I wrote what if. And then I wrote the word subjunctive. I listened to a, a, a podcast and a radio show called Away With Words. And years ago, the, the presenters on that show, they defined the subjunctive tense or the subjunctive mood in language as... Oh, I've got to get this right now. <laughs> the sub- subjunctive is something which is conditional and contrary to fact. And, and the classic phrase which uses the subjunctive would be the song from Fiddler on the Roof, If I Were a Rich Man. Mm-hmm. You know, you're familiar with that? If I Were yes. a, a Rich Man. So that's subjunctive. It's conditional, and that's because it's got an if in it. And then it's contrary to fact, because I am not a rich man. So there, there are the two factors, uh, conditional and contrary to fact. And the minute I heard that definition, I thought, that's what science fiction is. Because science fiction is about if, and it's always about things that are contrary to fact. They're always dealing with things that aren't really that way in the real world. So... To me, science fiction is subjunctive. I don't know if I'm the only person in the world who believes that, but uh, I'm, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> does that make any sense? It does. I read the Wikipedia definition for science fiction, mm-hmm. and it embeds science fiction in a larger class called speculative fiction. Yes. And it includes almost a Linnaean classification of science fiction and fantasy and uh, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic and pre-apocalyptic and alternative history and a whole whole raft of them trying to segment each one out. But each one is tied together by this idea of what if the world were somehow different in a way that it isn't today? Yes. yes. Or, or in the case of alternative history, what if that had happened in the past? What if we had invented cloning in the 1950s? What would life be like today and who could access it? And that, that's a very interesting point, because science fiction is not just this one thing. I mean, we're saying it, it has this what-if element to it. But when you start thinking about the types of stories that we have, so we have stories about people travelling off into space. We also have stories about people travelling into the future and then into the past. We mm-hmm. have stories about parallel presence. So sort of mirror universes and, as you say, alternative ways that our world could have played out from a different historical uh, turning point. Um, And all of those things, they're all so very different from each other. And yet there's something about them that makes us want to group them together. 
and uh, that I think that's that's precisely why defining it is really hard because all of those different types of fiction are doing very different things um, but somehow they all appeal to the same mindset well and even as readers there are people that prefer the various different flavors of science fiction yes yeah. Uh, some people prefer the classics. Some people prefer the most progressive that's that's going on. Some people prefer time travel stories or military science fiction or a whole range of, of what's out there. Do you have any particular flavors that, that you go for? I'm not a fan of the most progressive science fiction. Mm-hmm. Although I think one other thing that's very interesting about science fiction that, that we had touched on is uh, you can use science fiction as a lens to look at your own society and community and to take parts of it um, in and out of focus. Right. Uh, and the thing I'm thinking of in particular is the Star Trek episode, which I should have looked up the name before we did this. Uh, it's the episode where there are uh, two aliens from a planet, and the planet has destroyed itself in a war over racism. Oh, yes. And the problem is that half of the aliens are white on one side of their face and black on the other. And the the two only survivors are the mirror images of one another. At a very early age, when I saw this on television, it made me think, you know, well, what really makes people different? It certainly can't be the color of their face or their skin. That episode's called Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Um, I'm incredibly nerdy when it comes to original Star Trek. I know most of the episodes. I, 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 if I see 30 seconds of an episode, I can name most of them. Um, wow. I, I can't do that with any other season you know once we get to next generation and and so on i don't know them well enough to to come anywhere near that but uh, because i i watched original star trek so many times as a kid that uh, i i got to know them all <laughs> like well, like old friends <laughs> <laughs> well it was probably syndicated unless you watched it on original broadcast um i i honestly don't know i i do know that in the uk it was uh, the original broadcast came several years after the first American broadcast. Wow. Um, but whether I don't think I saw the first run. I might have done. I, 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 was, I was alive at the time, but I <laughs> doubt that I did see the very first run. But it was shown on primetime um, national television for years. And, and also I, uh, I read the books, you know, I read the, the short story adaptations by James Blish. Um, but also mm-hmm. I, I read loads of books about the making of Star Trek and other TV series and films. That's, that's another aspect of my personal connection is this, this fascination with the filmmaking process. So I've got loads of books on how films are made. And so lifting the curtain doesn't spoil the magic of what you've watched or does just intensify your interest and passion in it? For me, it intensifies. It's even more magical if I know how a thing is done. Have you seen the Penn and Teller show Fool Us, where magicians yes. come on and try and fool them? Um, I do watch that, and I, I do like to try and figure out how the trick is done, and, and some of the time I'm possibly right. A lot of the time I'm almost certainly wrong. But for <laughs> me, it wouldn't spoil it at all if after each trick they showed you how it was done. To me, that would intensify the magic. And um, I, I would be even more amazed that somebody had been able to trick me. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Knowing what goes on behind the curtain, to me, uh, adds. It doesn't subtract at all. But I know for some people it, it spoils things totally. 
Well, you must have a very strong sense of disbelief. The ability to abstract yourself out in the moment to enjoy what you're reading or watching, and then only later to come back and to complete your enjoyment by trying to figure it out and deeply understand it. I guess so. Yeah. I had never thought about that. You've given me something to think about. And and that's what this podcast is for, folks. <laughs> <laughs> in In terms of what we mean on this podcast, I think we go back to, it's probably what you said, Seth said about um, pornography. I think on this podcast, we're probably going to use this idea that if we decide it's science fiction, it is science fiction. Would you agree with that? Sure. You know, <laughs> uh, in, I'm also on another podcast. And one of the, the rules of the podcast is it's our podcast, our rules. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. What we're going to try and do on this podcast is always talk about something to do with the past of science fiction, something to do with the present, and something to do with the future. So shall we talk about the past, Colin? I know we've been doing that a bit anyway. But, <laughs> yes. Um, I thought what would be interesting would be if we could pick out something and kind of make it a recommendation to the listeners. So if I could begin with that, I'd I'd just like to pick out two things. Um, one is a book which I just happen to have been reading um, over the last few weeks. And, and although it's a fairly short book, it, it took me a long time because I've been very busy. Um, but strangely, for the first time, I read Invasion of the Body Snatchers by Jack Finney, which is a book first published, I think, in about 1955. And I've owned a copy of it for decades, and I've started right. reading it. But for various reasons, I never got very far with the book. And I just decided, I think uh, just after Christmas, that I'm going to read this book because I, I've read lots of Jack Finney and um, I really enjoy his style. He has a very, very easy reading conversational style. He, he often writes his stories and his novels in a first person voice. So you feel you're experiencing events through the, the narrator's experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that somehow makes it, um, it's very easy to get into. It's it's not as if there is a separate narrator who is analysing events. So I, I've always quite liked Finney's approach to, to the way he writes. Um, but his most famous book, The Body Snatchers, I, as I say, I'd never read all the way through. So I decided to read it. And I've just finished reading it a couple of weeks ago. And um, I love it very much, so I would strongly recommend people check it out. It's actually called The Body Snatchers, but I think any um, sort of recent publication of it that you find will be titled Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because obviously it was made into a film in the 1950s, and that was remade in the 70s, and then it's been remade a couple of times since. Um, and I think at some point either Finney or his publisher decided, well, we'd better call this the same thing as the films because they're now more famous than the book. <laughs> so uh, so yes. Jack Finney's Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of my recommendations. Have, have you got a recommendation, Colin? I do, although coincidentally I'm reading exactly the same book. Oh, really? Yes, right now. Uh, it's going to be the subject of the, uh, this other podcast that I'm on where we talked about science fiction that's been adapted into uh, television or movies. Right, yeah. Uh, and I'm curious, do you happen to know what year the edition of your book is? Ah, now I was reading this time. I've got a physical edition, which would have been published 
probably in the late 1970s or the early 1980s. It's a paperback from around that time. But the one I was actually reading this time was a Kindle edition, which I noticed has a copyright date of 1978, and it's it's marked as being a revised version of the book. And what I really want to do is compare it to the original, because I don't know what Finney changed in there, but I'd love to know. Uh I had read that very thing that the edition I'm reading on my Nook is the revised and expanded edition from yes. 1989. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm, I'm very curious because, well, I don't want to spoil things for people that have read the book, but there are things in there which I don't think were in the original. Let me just say that. I assume that must be the case. But I, when reading, once I knew that I was reading a revised version. I was kind of looking out for things that were perhaps, um, what's the word, anachronistic, but I, I didn't really see anything. Did, did you spot anything particular? Yes. Although I, I, and that, those are things I could actually check out. You see, that book was originally serialized in Collier's Magazine, which is now yeah. defunct. Yes. And um, if you look hard enough, although I, it's not something I do very often, you can find uh, PDF copies of a lot of the old Collier's content online it's it's not out of copyright yet yeah and, and i don't know the copyright status of it but i'd be very curious to see what the original was versus what i'm reading and then to look at the movies and how they evolve and change over time one thing i do know um is that the first film technically is not an adaptation of the novel because the novel hadn't been published at that time what the first film is is an adaptation of the Collier's serial. And I think either in the credits of the film or possibly on one of the posters, it does say based on the serial by Jack Finney. Interesting. Um, but again, what the differences are between them, I don't know. I've not been able to pin that down. Uh, one of the things that I really like about reading older books, whether they're science fiction or not, is this I this it immerses you in the culture of that time. And one of the things that this book opens with is a lament about the fact that we don't yet have uh, a vaccine for measles. Right. Oh, yes. And, you know, uh, who knows when people will be listening to this podcast, but this was recorded in the very beginning of 2021, and we have only recently gotten a vaccine for COVID-19. Have, have you finished the book now, Colin? No, I'm about halfway oh. through. Okay, so I want... I... Yeah, okay. I won't give any spoilers. But <laughs> let's just say that hypodermic syringes play a part in the story later on. <laughs> There's one other item that I personally would recommend to people, although it's a little bit difficult to get hold of now because it's slightly out of print, is a series of books called The Road to Science Fiction, which were edited by James Gunn. Not not the filmmaker James Gunn. This was an, an earlier James Gunn, James E. Gunn, um, who died recently at the age of 95 or thereabouts. Um, and James Gunn was a science fiction writer, a short story writer, novelist, anthologist. He was also one of the first people to teach science fiction in uh, colleges and universities. And he set up a, a centre for study of science fiction in Kansas. Um, so he's been a, a very influential figure on the, the sort of developing academic interest in science fiction. But anyway, he put out this series of books, I think in the late 70s or the early 80s, called The Road to Science Fiction. The first volume um, is really about the prehistory 
of science fiction. So he takes you back to the earliest kinds of literature that might in some way resemble science fiction. So he goes back to Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then he traces through sort of developments in fantastic storytelling up till uh, the appearance of H.G. Wells. And this first volume contains, I don't know, maybe a, a dozen or more short stories or extracts from longer works, um, and all of them introduced with a, a small essay. Um, and, and these are not uh, deeply academic at all. These are very accessible um, little historical essays. And that, that the discovery of that book, for me, really opened up the whole field of science fiction, because I'd been sort of reading almost in this random way, uh, whatever I happened to discover, you know. Um, but with James Gunn's book, I, I for the first time, and, and, and I was reading this when I was in my 20s, so for the first time I was getting a sense of how the field of science fiction came to be. Um, and the the beautiful thing about that first volume, right at the back, he puts a recommended reading list and he gives you this long list of sort of representative works of science fiction almost a canon of science fiction literature with um, a brief explanation of why he's chosen each one and I actually f for a number of years I, I kept a copy of that list and I tried to find as many of those items as I could and I tried to sort of systematically read through the, the whole canon of science fiction. Anyway, the, the Road to Science Fiction, the first volume, is the prehistory of science fiction, and then there were volumes that studied the development of American science fiction and then modern science fiction. Um, so it's a series of anthologies, and they are incredibly good. And um, so I highly recommend, if anyone's interested in the history of science fiction, you can read all sorts of dry histories that just tell you the facts, but James Gunn illustrates it by giving you passages of text from all of these works, and it, it'll blow your mind when you see some of these things in there. Well, and written by someone who was in the field rather than an outside observer as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely right, yeah, yeah. Uh, a while ago, they found John Campbell's original novel, Frozen Hell, which became the novella Who Goes There, which became the movie The Thing, which people will rec uh, recognize from John Carpenter's uh, adaptation of it from the 80s. Um, as part of that Kickstarter to, to get the book, he released a large series of uh, science fiction mega packs from the golden age of science fiction. And there's a section that was all James Gunn short stories. Wow. I'm always really pleased when I see his his works being preserved. Um, I, I should say, for anyone who's not familiar with James Gunn, he, as I say, he died recently at the age of about 95. And he's, he was still an active writer. He, he sent um, new stories off to either Asimov's or Analog magazine just a few days before he died or a few weeks before he died. And in the last, over the last decade, he was publishing this, this mammoth um, trilogy of novels. So he was still an active writer. And although his later stuff is probably not as good as the stuff he was writing when he was you know, a sort of a, a young writer. Mm. Um, it, it's still fairly good stuff. I, I only read the first of that trilogy of novels, um, but it still struck me as being a relevant work, and you wouldn't have known if you'd given it to somebody and you didn't tell them that the author was in there 
80s or 90s, I don't think they would be able to tell from the writing style. It was just so, just sort of, well, it just seemed like a normal book, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, with James Gunn, we've we've recently lost one of the last survivors of the so-called golden age of science fiction because he was active in the 1940s and 50s um, when much of the science fiction field of literature as we know it was being defined um, he was one of the last survivors of that i think there are still a couple of writers around from that era but there are very few left now mm-hmm. have you got any other recommendations of things from the past i am a a particularly big fan of uh, Day of the Triffids. Oh, yes. Uh, it was one of the first times I read science fiction where the 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 way it was written was more like prose. Science fiction tends to get a negative connotation because a lot of it is is pulpy. Even today, mm. you don't tend to see a lot of literature or art or craft in it. That doesn't say that it isn't being written that way, but a lot of the common science fiction just is that way. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the prose in Day of the Triffids is beautiful. So if, if you want to read a story about uh, an apocalyptic event that involves science fiction and just have with beautiful language, I would recommend that. I also read... Uh, Day of the Triffids at an early age and uh, here in the UK there was a time when John Wyndham was science fiction um, you know he was and and I, actually I still find this today if I meet people of a certain age they quite often get Ray Bradbury and John Wyndham mixed up because oh. they were reading both of them at the same time the, these are people who sort of grew up I suppose in the the late 1950s and the early 1960s and they were being presented with really just two writers of science fiction who would have been very contemporary figures at the time and they were Wyndham because he was British and actively publishing in Britain and uh, Bradbury because he was considered to be the respectable face of American science fiction you know because he wasn't a pulpy uh, writer he was a stylist oh yeah his writing is beautiful yeah Shall we move on to the present? Yes. Shall we talk about um, new science fiction or stuff that you've read lately that could be considered sort of contemporary or stuff that you've watched or or listened to? What have you got on the go at the moment that could be considered present or current science fiction? Recently, I have been reading a lot of fantasy. Uh, The science fiction that I choose to read, though, for enjoyment is either the works of John Scalzi particularly his Interdependency series. Right. And uh, Mary Robinette Cole, who has written an incredible alternative history. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about it, but it's, in, yeah, it's incredible. It, the, it's built around the idea of what if an asteroid destroyed Washington, D.C. in the uh, mid-1950s and initiated a global catastrophe that required that humanity leave the planet or perish in the next 50 years. And the it's it's beautifully written. The characters are compelling and very, very real. One of the things I tend not to like about science fiction is where you have the perfect hero. Everything is right. They never make mistakes. Everything goes well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy seeing how a person makes mistakes and doesn't handle every contingency and learns and grows from that as a person. A character arc is really important to me and good story. 
Yes, I, I would agree with that as well. Um, and, and that's, I suppose, one of the one of the constraints of just pinning yourself to a particular genre. Uh, because sometimes the writers in that genre don't approach their stories from the point of view of a character, and they they simply obsess over the the kind of the technical stuff. Um, but yeah, if you choose the right authors, you will find good character development. And I have to say, I've got that um, that trilogy, or at least the first one of the trilogy, on my must read this at some point list. But whether when I'll get round to it, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I've heard some really good things about that. Well, if you find yourself with a slow afternoon, mm-hmm. you should start with the little novella that began it, The Lady Astronaut of Mars. You can right. find it on Tor.com. Excellent. Thank you. I'll, I'll look out for that. Um, my piece of current science fiction is a novel by Robert J. Sawyer, who's um, a science fiction writer who's, well, he, he's won major awards in the past and he's been very prolific over I don't know he's probably been writing for about 30 maybe 40 years now Um, but he last year published a a new novel the first one for a long time I think called the Oppenheimer Alternative and what intrigued me about that before I even read it was the concept of it, which was a kind of alternative history, or I should say alternative biography of Robert Oppenheimer, you know, the guy who was in charge of the uh, the atomic bomb project, the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'd read a lot about Oppenheimer in the past. I always found him a very fascinating historical figure, and I've read quite a lot about the um, the atomic bomb and the the kind of history of physics that led up to the the atomic bomb so it's always been a, an area uh, of history that I've been fascinated by and to see that somebody had written a novel about Oppenheimer intrigued me and the the curious thing about this novel is at the beginning especially if you know anything about Oppenheimer at the beginning you feel that you're just reading a, a kind of a dramatised biography. But by the end of the book, you're very conscious that you're reading a work of science fiction. And it somehow goes from the real events of the, the Manhattan Project and prior to the Manhattan Project. It, it starts there and it tells Oppenheimer's true story as it really is. And at some point it becomes science fiction. <laughs> and you're not quite conscious of when that happens i mean when when you sort of reflect back over the book you you do figure it out but i believe it is entirely possible for somebody to read that book and to either think that the whole thing is a work of fiction or to believe that the whole thing is a true story uh, because it is written in such a convincing way wow um, it's it's a really fascinating work what i don't know is to be honest, how much it would work for somebody who knows nothing at all about Oppenheimer. I think you probably need to know a little bit about him um, before uh, tackling the novel. But it, it, it's very well written, and I think it's a, quite an astonishing achievement. Um, so that, that's my recommendation, The Oppenheimer Alternative by Robert J. Sawyer. So it almost sounds like Hamilton, where you could watch the musical Hamilton and think you know all of Hamilton's history and not know how it's been condensed and altered to make a better story and musical from the true history of Hamilton. Right, yeah. 
that's an interesting comparison. I, <laughs> I would not have thought to make that comparison, but yeah, I suppose so. I suppose any kind of retelling of a historical event has some, uh, I was going to say distortion, but um, it's, I, I think earlier you were saying something about um, looking at things through a lens, you know, mm. and uh, any any telling of a historical series of events is looking through a lens anyway. Uh, but a creative retelling, such as in a musical or in a, a science fiction novel, is going to be a really quite a distorting lens, a bit like a wide-angle lens or a fisheye lens that's <laughs> going to give you a, um, a not-true perspective, but nevertheless, a, in some ways, a valid perspective. I have to say, I gave up trying to keep up with the literature of science fiction probably in about the mid-90s. Um, I, As I said before, I... I tried to do this systematic um, reading through the canon at some point um, but I, I I kind of ran out of steam and I, I kind of admitted defeat um, one year when I, I realised I hadn't read any of the books or stories that were nominated for the major awards and I thought uh, I just can't keep up with this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rapidly expanding field. Absolutely. The one thing I do keep up with though is is science fiction film and TV pretty much. Um, although again, I've, I've pretty much given up hope for science fiction film because I'm I'm not too impressed, certainly with the major Hollywood um, stuff of recent years. But television stuff, you know, I'm I'm still liking things like The Handmaid's Tale, Devs, the Alex Garland series, and and I even watch the modern Star Treks um, avidly, but I I constantly complain about them because they're not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so I I argue with my friend, about whether things are Star Trek or whether things aren't Star Trek. And I'm afraid for someone, you know, who, like you, grew up in the 70s watching the original series uh, ad infinitum, it's hard to call a lot of what's going on in today's popular Star Trek's classic Star Trek in style. That's They're right. a little more like superhero movies. And there's nothing wrong with superhero movies. They're wildly entertaining. They have some very good morality plays. Sometimes, yeah, but they're just not quite the same. Maybe we should talk about that for a whole episode one week. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> our opinion of Star Trek's, yeah, yeah. Let's look to the future. What science fiction are you looking forward to seeing or reading or hearing in the next year or so? Well, starting next week, as a Star Trek fan, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I'll mention it now because I'm excited about it. Uh, we'll begin a crowdfunding campaign to start a documentary about Star Trek Voyager. Yes, I had heard about that. I saw the, the Deep Space Nine documentary, which I quite liked, although mm -hmm. I think it was, as is often the case when somebody somebody is involved in the documentary who is perhaps too close to the subject, uh, it became a bit self-serving in some places. But uh, no, it was, it was a very well-made piece overall. So yes, I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. And uh, Andy Ware's new book, Hail Mary, is coming out. And I really enjoy his writing. I think he has great science fiction and ideas. And I, I like the near-term science fiction as well. The only thing of his that I've read is um, The Martian, which struck me as a, a very, well, a, a kind of a very traditional kind of science fiction in the sense that it was problem-solving and uh, almost nuts and bolts in in some respects, but well-written to to say that it is traditional science fiction does not take anything away from it, in in my view. 
but I, but I haven't read anything else that he's written. Well, he hasn't written a lot. Uh, he's a relatively new author. Mm -hmm. uh, he has one other published book, uh, a series of short stories, which you can find, you know, on various online websites. And so this is his third book. So the future could well be his then. I sure hope so. Yeah. My hopes for the future are one is actually already with us, and that is the second season of the TV series For All Mankind, which I don't know if you've seen that, but the, the, the premise is that the space race of the 1950s and 1960s took some slightly different turns to what actually happened at that time. And so it projects an alternative present, if you like, um, where, for example, there were female astronauts at a much earlier point in the American space program, and there was competition for establishing bases on the moon, all sorts of things like that. And um, it, it was a bit of a um, uh, Apache first se season. There were there were some really good things in there, but there were also some clunky elements, I thought. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the second season, which looks as if it's going to project the, the, the space age more up to our present time, if you like, and possibly beyond. I don't, I don't know quite what the timeline is going to be. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the second season of that. And the other one, which I am hopeful for, because I want it to be good, but I have no idea whether it will be, there's going to be a TV series based on Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Now, I'm I'm not a great fan of Asimov, but I do have fond memories of reading the Foundation trilogy, the original trilogy of novels, and there are some fantastic ideas in there. And what Asimov classically did in that trilogy, really, was... Um, it, it's going back to Kim Stanley Robinson again. What Asimov did is he took the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and he sort of used that um, as a way of predicting the future of an empire, if you like. So he, he used knowledge of um, a real empire to talk about a fictional future empire. So I suppose, in a way, that is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's historical uh, science fiction as historical literature. Quite how you do that as a TV series, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to see them do it. I fear it will be terrible, but uh, <laughs> we could live in hope. Yeah, it's. I think it would lend itself well to a television adaptation because it isn't an ongoing the first book isn't an ongoing narrative it's actually a series of, of vignettes over hundreds and hundreds of years yes and 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 of course that's typical of lots of science fiction novels of that time because they were made up actually of previously published short stories so asimov published his short stories in uh, astounding science fiction and various other magazines and then stitched them together to form novels. And uh, Ray Bradbury did that with the Martian Chronicles and lots of other writers of that time. But because those story, that those novels started out as fragments, I think they can be replayed as fragments in a TV series better than they could be done in uh, a single movie, let's say. Yes. So that, that, that's why I've, I've got my fingers crossed that that's going to be a good, uh, a worthwhile thing to watch. We, we should talk at some point about the fragmentation of media and the loss of uh, a common set of knowledge that everyone can share and then talk about. Yes. Because if you don't have this subscriber service or that subscriber service, uh, you don't participate 
in that community or, or that those things that are being viewed. I've often thought about that as being probably this is the way that our civilization comes to an end, which, <laughs> which is a, a very grand thing when all we're talking about really is film and TV. But uh, yeah, if you think of, of how civilizations work, they, they, they bind themselves together through this shared cultural uh, tradition. Um, and and I, it seems to me that we've got a civilization here where for the first time in history we're kind of embracing things that take away shared culture but i suppose at the same time as people not having access to the common platforms we do then have social media that bind people together around shared interests and i think people find a way it's a bit like jurassic park you know nature will find a way <laughs> I think most people find a way of watching these things that they don't have a subscription to. My way is I go to the library. That's a very good way, <laughs> if they're open. <laughs> well, time is running away from us. So uh, we've talked about the past, we've talked about the present, we've talked about the future. And I'd like to thank you listeners for listening to our first episode. And I hope you'll join us for our next one. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And look out for the show notes on our website, which is 101sf.blogspot.com. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science Fiction 101. Hello, this is Phil again. Thanks for listening to this first sample episode of Science Fiction 101. Don't forget to subscribe using your podcast app and check out our website, which is 101sf.blogspot.com. And don't forget, this year I'm also producing a YouTube series called Bradbury 101. It's a direct spin-off from Bradbury 100. Find out more at my usual website, bradburymedia.co.uk. And thanks for listening.